It's just again um, a challenge for me, and and yeah, uh, I took it. <laughs> but <laughs> at the beginning, it was like jumping, jumping from a plane, and you're like, okay, I don't know if the parachute is gonna open or not, but I'm just, I'm gonna jump. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Regional Australia has come a long way in a food sense. Although we've had wonderful regional restaurants over the years, more recently a throng of establishments that embrace the surrounds and speak of a place have emerged to take regional dining in a new and exciting direction. What's it like heading down that path? Joseph Espuga is the Culinary Director at Point Leo Estate. Joseph, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having me. It's great to get you on the show. You're leading the team of an incredible establishment down there in Mornington. Um, how are things? Things are very well. Getting ready for summer, getting uh, busy already, and things are looking good for summer. We have a strong team and we are ready for it. It's it's been an interesting couple of years, but Mornington's such a destination, particularly for those from Melbourne as well. How, how are th- things sort of settling down and panning out now? Well, now uh, this is the first year that we trade uh, completely for for a year since all the lockdowns, uh, because yeah, last year we had a fire as well, and we were closed for almost seven months. We were running a pop-up restaurant, uh, which we call the Pavilion, but our three other restaurants, uh, Laura, Point Leo and the Terrace, were closed for almost seven months. So very happy to be back and to have some consistency back. Tell us a little bit about that fire. It had such an impact on all of the workers and everything. Did it change the direction of what you do there? Well, Point Leo State is a family, has become a family, uh, especially after the lockdowns. Uh, I guess like many other businesses, uh, we had to stick together and go through it, find solutions to stay together and and to get out of, out of it in the best way, in the best possible way. So the fire kind of um, did uh, the same effect as as, as uh, the lockdowns did, but because we were coming from all the lockdowns already, um, we were in a in a better situation uh, in terms of uh, team. So the teams worked together, and we could turn out. Um, 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 a pop-up offer, which was the pavilion straight away. It took us only a month and a half to get ready for, for that. And that kept the whole team engaged. So we had the three teams from the three restaurants working together in that project. And that kept us sane, I guess, and kept us focused because uh, it was quite traumatic for the whole team to go through um, the closing of the whole state after the fire. But that kept us sane and kept us focused and kept us healthy during those seven months and ready to reopen in December last year. You know, off, off the back of COVID as well, has it changed the way you approach things and you approach sort of what you want to get out of hospitality? Well, it did a, a little bit. Uh, I think it just reassured some of the the the, the core ideas 
that um, are part of the, the base of our business, which is, you know, collaboration and working with the local farmers and producers of the Mornington Peninsula. If something we learned during, during the lockdowns and during COVID was that we had to work together with the local community to support each other, to go through it. And especially here in Victoria with the, the, distance, um, the distance limits we had where we could get our produce and, and mobility as well. So it just made our relations with the local producers and farmers stronger than they were. Tell us a little bit about the offering that you have there at the moment. So we have three restaurants here at Point Lee Estate. We have the Terrace, which is our casual dining restaurant, which is open uh, uh, only on the weekends in winter and then seven days a week in summer. And that restaurant is right next to the Celador. Uh, we offer dishes and, and snacks to go with the, the wines that we produce here at Pointly Estate. Then we have Pointly Restaurant, which just got uh, one hat at the Good Food Guide, and that's our modern bistro. It seats around 160 guests, and, um, and uh, we have a big wood fire oven, which is the heart of the kitchen. And it's very um, Mornington Peninsula produce focused. And then we have Laura Restaurant, which is our two-hat restaurant, which seats uh, 40 guests and serves tasting menu only. Um, we have a signature menu and we have a seasonal menu. The seasonal menu gives us the opportunity to showcase ingredients from the peninsula that have very short seasons. So, for example, ingredients that are around just for a couple of months, like truffles or sea urchin or uh, white asparagus, things like this. What's it like sort of managing, you know, multi-offerings like that and having so many staff as well? How, how do you manage that? We are almost 40 in the kitchen now. We are around, yeah, uh, 37, including chefs and kitchen hands and apprentices. And it is exciting. It is like um, waking up at 6.30 in the morning and um, the phone starts ringing very soon, early in the morning, um, suppliers or staff, or there is always something happening. But it is really exciting. For me, the most exciting part of it is, uh, I'd say, the weekends when we have the three restaurants open and everyone is hands-on. And you walk through the kitchen and you, you have a chef tempering chocolate in one side, you have another one breaking down a, a fish, and you have another one just like rolling pasta. And you walk through it and it's just so much happening. And for people who have love for hospitality and restaurants and kitchens is it just gives you life every day it's uh, what you're doing there is it's just such great representation of the region and the offerings in regards to produce um do you have do you have any stories of some of the connections that you've made with farmers and the produce you used Yes, so many, so many. Like we are in, in touch or I am in touch with my producers every day because especially now with uh, climate change as well, uh, it's not as predictable as it used to be. So the season, uh, as I said, yeah, it's unpredictable and you just need to be in touch with your producers every day because um, you, you, you never know what you're going to get or 
but that's what makes it exciting as well. So, for example, one of the producers I work very close with is Sue from Cape Shank State. She makes our olive oil, but also since a year and a half ago, she has part of her property. Uh, she's uh, doing a kitchen garden for us, and she's growing all the um, uh, lettuces and, and herbs and flowers that we use in both restaurants. And, for example, um, we have an ingredient that we use thanks to this close relationship with her, which is uh, olive paste. When she makes olive oil, um, they are very meticulous and very particular in the way they make the olive oil, and they remove the pits before making the olive oil. And after the olive oil is pressed, there is a paste left in the machine that is clean, is untouched, and is pure olive paste. And they used to just discard it and, and put it on the ground, back on the ground, use it um, just for the trees. And um, two years ago, I asked her to keep some for me, and I tried it, and we tried it in the kitchen, and now it's, um, it's a key ingredient for Laura. Uh, not enough to use it in Pony Restaurant because Pony Restaurant, the numbers are too big for something like this. But these are the kind of ingredients we can showcase in Lora. And now it's mixed, it's mixed in our butter. So the butter we serve in Lora has the olive paste from Cape Shank State, from the olive press. Yeah. Well, I want to explore um, what you're doing there um, a bit later on in the conversation. But take us back to when you were young. Whereabouts did you grow up and what sort of role did food play? I grew up in a small village in the Pyrenees in Spain, uh, in Catalonia, near, near France. Uh, 2,000 people, small village, uh, yeah, in the, in the mountains. So a lot of uh, wild boar and venison and truffles, mushrooms. Uh, food was a massive part of my childhood. I guess it's one of these cliche stories of European chefs that come to Australia that <laughs> you, you heard it so many times that, uh, you know, I grew up next to my grandmother and my, and my mother. They were cooking at home. My father was foraging mushrooms uh, because, I mean, that's what they did. My grandparents were farmers and like they un un understood how important it is, the, the origin of what you eat. And, and also like they, they were poor farmers. So they just, they had to have animals and, and, and plant food for them to, to eat it. You know, like uh, they couldn't afford to go to the shops and, and buy anything. So they had to grow it themselves. So I grew up in a family that, you know, um, was growing food at home and was um, um, uh, eating from what we had around. And, and also my grandmother was an amazing cook. Her family didn't have, um, were, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't really uh, give her the education that they wanted to. And they sent her to Barcelona. They sent her to the city to work for a family and learn how to cook and all these things. This was back in the 1930s. So, I mean, it's, it's a long time ago. Um, but she learned how to cook. And I remember as a kid at home, she was getting rabbits from, from the neighbor, was killing the rabbits herself and making an amazing casserole at home with rice and snails. And those food memories are, yeah, some of the best that still live with me. 
Is, are there any sort of um, dishes or feasts that you remember from when you were young that you can share with us? Yeah, I guess the 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 ones from my mother are the the the, the best ones. Um, for example, this ra- this rabbit. Um, I still remember seeing the rabbit in the kitchen sink, and my grandmother cutting the throat of the rabbit and then making the rice. And uh, the other one that she was making on Sundays when we were going there with my parents was uh, she was getting fresh uh, milk from a local farm and getting currant sizzle is um, yeah it's a type of is a plant is from the artichoke family and she was using that uh, to cut the milk to use it as a as a rennet and she was making this fresh cheese at home that yeah my dad loved it so much we really had to fight for that one <laughs> <laughs> when did you sort of first start to think of being a chef and what were the steps you took Straight away, since I was little, like, uh, I think probably when I was, uh, I don't know, eight or nine is when I thought about um, becoming a chef. That's because my grandmother was working in this hotel. And when my parents were leaving me there with my grandmother because they were on holidays or whatever, I was, my grandmother used to take me to work to the hotel. And I was there playing with, with the son of the hotel. We were just two little kids playing around in the kitchen, in the, um, you know, in the back of house, in the restaurant. So I grew up in this environment. And then I guess because, you know, uh, that's, that's what I was surrounded by. That's what I wanted to do. So I really enjoyed cooking at home with my, with my mother. And then um, I think when I was 12, uh, my neighbor started studying at a hospitality school, culinary school. Then he was coming on the weekends and explaining to me how they were wearing these tall hats and the, with the knives and everything. And I'm like, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I went to my parents and I'm like, this is what I want to do. And when I was 13, I started at the culinary school. Yeah. <laughs> I see 13 year old kids now and I'm like, wow, <laughs> I was a kid. Yeah. Um, you also sort of fulfilled your mother's dream to open a, a, a restaurant. Tell us about that. Well, because my grandmother was working in hospitality and my mother followed her steps and my mother is the one who always wanted to have her own restaurant. So it, the th- things kind of happened at the same time. Um, when I started at the, at the culinary school when I was 13 is when my parents, together with my grandmother, opened the restaurant in my hometown. It was a little brasserie. Uh, my mother closed last year. No, actually, at the beginning of this year. So, uh, yeah, almost 30, 30 years yeah, she had it opened. Yeah. It was a small brasserie. They had a Jospa oven, and they were cooking all the meats on the charcoal in front of the guests. My dad was in charge of the charcoal. My grandmother was in the kitchen. My mother was uh, managing the business and on the floor, talking to guests, and and and, and I was doing whatever, <laughs> washing, washing dishes. I just had to do it. Like uh, there was no choice because the re- they opened the restaurant and the my uh, at home like under the house and at the basement so there was no escape <laughs> when i was when i was a teenager um i just had to do it you know like even if you had a big night with your friends the night before and my my mother was opening the restaurant at 6 a.m to make coffees and breakfast for 
people from the area, you know, for farmers and for truck drivers and foragers and fishermen and people and things like this. So um, <laughs> sometimes I was coming back from my friends really late and at 5.30, 6 a.m. I had to be downstairs making coffees or cleaning the bar or whatever. But um, it was good. Did, did that experience, it didn't deter you from entering the industry though? No, no, not really. Um, um, not really. Um, when I was 16, I started working in a hotel that was not far from my parents' house, from home. And that was the hotel that I was always looking up uh, when, I was, when I was a little kid because the chef and owner there, he did his training in France and Michelin restaurants. He was a Maison Peak. And his restaurant was uh, the Michelin Guide, and it was like the fine dining restaurant of the area, small hotel. Being in the family since the uh, 17th uh, century, so really special place. And uh, finally, I uh, started working there when I was 16, and I was there for almost four years. So while I was studying, I was working there on the weekends, and I then I did a couple of years full-time. You also spent time working with Sergi Arola, a famous chef. Um, how did that come about, and what was it like? I moved to Madrid after 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 I worked at this hotel uh, near my, my, my hometown, and um, that's mainly because I started getting uh, hungrier because I was 20 and I was enjoying working in fine dining and gastronomy was like, I, I knew then that that was what I wanted to do. So I, I thought now I need to move somewhere more serious. And Sergi Arola had this restaurant La Broge in Madrid at that time. He was... He was an uh, alumni from El Bulli, from Ferran Adria, and he was kind of one of the first chefs from El Bulli that opened his own place. And he was doing this uh, modern cuisine in, in Madrid. And I'm like, I have to, I have to work there. So <laughs> I, was, I was 20. I was calling the restaurant. Um, you know, it was a bit different by then. There was no social media. Um, there was email, but it wasn't as big as it is now. So I was like, just just ringing the restaurant and asking to talk to Sergio Rola to work there. But obviously, Sergio Rola was never answering. So one day, the one of the chefs is like, "Okay, just come over and we do an interview." And I went there, had an interview, and they never called me back. So I called back <laughs> the week after. And they offered me a stage. It's like we don't have a paid position, but we can give you a stage, but it's at least six months of stage. So I'm like, I don't care. I just want to work here. I want to learn. So I moved to Madrid. Um, Madrid is like, at that time, was like, it's like seven hours by train from my hometown. It's, it's, it's a big move. My parents were not happy at all because my parents had some expectations. They thought that maybe I was going to stay home and run the restaurant. But my ideas were a bit different. So it wasn't um, the, the, the best time when I moved to Madrid. 
my parents uh, kind of shut the relation. We we didn't speak for months. They were yeah, they were very upset. I have no brothers or sisters, so they felt like I was leaving them. They felt like I was never going to come back, and yeah, it was it was tough. Um, I was moving to Madrid on my own to work in a restaurant uh, without without pay i wasn't going to be to get anything paid i didn't have a lot of savings at that time because obviously you are 20 you i was working in hospitality and making a lot of money but i i was very lucky the bank uh, did a mistake at my favor and they gave me i think it was something between five and six thousand euros uh, as, as a mistake and I couldn't believe it. Like uh, I was doing a transaction on the phone and they gave me almost 6,000 euros extra. I didn't say anything. And I thought, okay, I'm just gonna play safe at the beginning because this can really help me to my move to Madrid. And never got any call from the bank or anything. So I ended up you know, keeping those 6,000 euros, going through those six months without pay in an expensive city like Madrid. And after five months, Sergio Rola offered me a full-time position. And I ended up staying at Labroche for two years. Uh, yeah. What was he like to work with? It was, it was very intense. Is what you, is, it is exactly what you hear from other chefs working at that level. So it is, it is intense. So you start at 9 a.m. in the morning and you finish at 2 a.m., uh, Spain, um, at the time, um, no many people used to come. No many, we didn't have many guests, especially in the weekend coming for dinner before 10, 10 30. So you finish very, very late. Um, the first month, it is what you hear as well from other chefs at Michelin restaurants. So you have to, you have to do jobs that no one else wants to do, but you just need to learn how to do them fast so you can jump onto the next one. And like this, every day, you just need to push yourself to do it a bit faster so you can be given a new job, a new task, and like this, make your way up in, in the kitchen. You mentioned that you had had a little bit of a falling out with the family, but you did eventually go back to help out uh, under sort of traumatic circumstances. Tell me a bit about that. Yes, of course. It's my, like, that's it. Uh, I wasn't leaving them because... I didn't want to be with them. I left because I was pursuing a, a career. But after two years being at La Broche, um, I was junior Sue at that time uh, with projections to go to El Bouilly for a season because we had a really strong relationship with El Bouilly at that time still. And every year one of our chefs was going to El Bouilly. So that, that was my turn to go to El Bouilly. And suddenly my dad had a stroke, um, really bad. He was in hospital. I got a call in the middle of the service. And that same night I took the train, I went back home. I got into a hospital. My dad was in bed. He couldn't talk. His left side was completely paralyzed. So I had to make a really tough decision. Mm -hmm. what, what sort of impact did that have on you moving home? So um, I still get a bit emotional when I think about it uh, because obviously the time I was, uh, I was almost 23. 
So I left Labroche, moved back home, and I had to take care of my my family. So my my dad was in hospital for a few months. I think it was three or four months um, with my mother. Um, during the week, I was there with them. Um, and then on the weekends, I was going to open the restaurant. And I was running the restaurant, uh, I mean, running it on my own, but I had support from a cousin and a couple of friends. Uh, that was after my grandma passed away, so my grandma wasn't there anymore. Um, but I had support from a cousin and some friends, and they were helping me running the restaurant on the weekends. But the, um, the worst part was when, when they were going home and I was closing the restaurant and I was sitting there on my own and my parents were in hospital. I was there on my own and it, that, was, that was tough to go through. Yeah. Um, I remember like some nights before going to bed, I was just grabbing a bottle of wine and going through the whole bottle and going to bed. And then the next day, 6 a.m., open the restaurant again, work all day until 11 at night, and just like this. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was tough to go through. My plan was to go back to Madrid. I, got, I had support from Sergi and from Labrois. They were like, just come back whenever you're ready. Um, but um, my dad's recovery was a lot longer than I thought, than I was expecting. And during that time, um, in my hometown, there is, um, there is a cooking appliances uh, factory. Uh, it's called Taurus. And they, they, um, it's, um, it's, it's a really big company. They, they sell worldwide um, cooking appliances. And they offered me to start a project together. It's a, they were working on this new project called My Cook. It was a cooking appliance um, designed for um, like uh, home cooks to help them uh, cooking at home. And it was the perfect opportunity for me to work on a new project that was exciting. And it was near home. I could still be close to my family. And I started that project, and I was there for four years, yeah. <laughs> you also got a chance to spend some time in the kitchen at uh, Muguritz as well. What sort of impact did that have on you? Yeah, that was uh, – I took some time off while I was um, working with this project, my cook. Uh, I took some time off to, to spend the autumn season at Muguritz, is something I wanted to do for a long time. Uh, when I was in Labrois, we did an event together with Andoni and and Sergio Rola, and it was it was it was one of my 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 I guess my um, my goals in 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 life to to spend some time there. Is it was one of the most inspiring times. Uh, I had in kitchens, um, just especially in autumn. Autumn is still my favorite season. And when you are in Europe in autumn and you have all the beautiful produce around you and you are in the Basque country, uh, Moritz is outside of San Sebastian and the place where it's located and the, and the produce you have around, and then autumn, it all together, it was just magic, I guess. Um, 
Um, I wasn't there for a very long time, but the impact that made to the way I understand food and the way I like to cook, uh, it, was, it was pretty big, yeah. You um, had these experiences in these incredible Michelin-star restaurants, but you became head chef and earned a spot in the Michelin Guide yourself. Tell us a bit about that. Mm, yeah, that was um, after this my cook project because um, my cook was um, uh, I could do things that you usually can't do when you work in a restaurant, which is like working with an engineering department uh, to come up with with uh, with um, with uh, an, an appliance and write a cookbook for it and then promote it and travel. But I was missing the restaurant. I was I was missing hospitality. So at the age, yeah, I was twenty six, almost twenty seven. Um, an old friend, he. Uh, he had a restaurant. He it was uh, a restaurant that was um, in the family for almost uh, seventy years. And my friend was my age, and he was on the floor. He was managing the restaurant. Was looking for a chef, and called me. And he's like, "Why don't you come and we work together?" And and yeah, it sounded like a great project to be part of. And like a young team, just, you know, like was my first head chef role. Uh, located as well in a beautiful area, surrounded by amazing produce, I, which is, I guess, what I always try to find when I move to a new restaurant is at least, you know, to be surrounded by beautiful ingredients and produce. And then from there, you can you can create your own style. But um, I moved there and, yeah, we were working hard and doing, following our, our instinct, doing what we thought it was the right thing to do. And we made it into the Michelin Guide um, after two years. And we got some awards nationally in Spain. And I guess after all that is when, you know, my... My international spark started <laughs> inside. I'm like, um, started a little bit when I was uh, working with my cook and I was traveling. Um, you know, the, the thought of living overseas uh, started raising in me. And then um, uh, I did it after, after, after this restaurant, yeah. Well, the the lion chair since then of your career has been international. Um, take us on some of... Sort of some of that journey. What's been the real sort of major impacts and countries that you've been to? Yeah, um, it was after um, after this restaurant, after Calci Riclo, um, when um, I had my first international experience. I moved to New York um, to be the head chef in a restaurant called the Station. Um, it sounds really easy said like that, but obviously there is a really big. Uh, process behind it um i had to i ha- i got this this opportunity thanks to a chef i worked with in in madrid in labroche he was a head chef of the restaurant the station in uh, his village manhattan and he was moving to vermont to open his own place and got me uh, an interview with his boss. I went, I, mo- I went to New York for a week and I cooked for his boss. I had to cook a tasting menu for him. And after a month or so, they offered me to move them. Um, the m- biggest challenge there was to work legally. 
uh, actually. Like um, I loved living then, and, and the produce you can get in New York is just you can get anything you want basically from anywhere in the world. But then also you can get everything from like fresh produce from uh, the north of New York where. There is uh, beautiful uh, vegetables. I was doing my shopping at uh, Union Square uh, Market, uh, the farmer's market, which um, I was getting all my, my produce from. And obviously soaking myself in that city. Uh, I, my restaurant was very close to WD50, and my boss was uh, quite close to uh, Wiley Dufresne, so could go there, eat there, go in their kitchen, see what they were doing. So that sense was like better than I ever thought it was going to be. <laughs> but I couldn't get a, a, a visa. It was really hard for me to get a, a visa and to work legally. So I was working without a visa, uh, just keeping keeping uh, getting paid cash keeping my money in in the socks uh, uh, draw and um, my seafood supplier was offering me uh, you know like a, a, a tax fine number it's like a hundred bucks you can get like a you know fake tax fine number I'm like I don't really want to live like this <laughs> this is not why I left Spain you know like I was okay in Spain like I don't want to live like this and then is when this offer came across uh, this uh, um, group of restaurants in Melbourne were, were looking for a Spanish chef internationally to open a new Spanish restaurant in Melbourne and this offer came across and I applied, not expecting much because didn't know much about Melbourne or about Australia, never been before. I was living in New York from Spain. You know, everything was very blurry. So I, but I applied because I was kind of looking for an escape. And they got back to me. We started uh, interviews and chatting and and passing them my 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 idea of project and menus and all that. And after a couple of months, sent me a letter of offer and I moved to Melbourne. And this was 12 years ago. Were you surprised by Melbourne and Australia when you got here? Uh, I think I was, yes. Um, I was... Uh, I was surprised by the love of uh, Spanish food and chorizo that Australia has, which that was very unexpected for me. I wasn't expecting to see how popular Spanish food was here and how much love Australians had for chorizo, which that played uh, an advantage for me. You've done all sorts of things since then, working on the Great Barrier Reef, um, cooking as the in-flight chef for in Abu Dhabi. Um, what have you taken from all these sort of crazy experiences? Well, at the end of the day, it's a love for hospitality, for food and wine. So I had, yeah, I'm, I think I've been pushing myself to... Um, to live all these different experiences around the world, mainly to to learn and 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 to experience um, uh, food and wine in you know in in different ways, which 
the more you travel and the more you see is like you 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 learn that is it's endless and i guess that's what hooks uh, uh hooks us um, a, lo- a lot of us you know that have been working in this industry for so long is that is is it's endless what you can learn and what you can see the the role that you had with Eddie had airways was was that challenging creating dishes taking yourself out of the restaurant context well, the role I had with Etihad Airways, it was mainly uh, I was I was on board, I was on the plane, I was based in Abu Dhabi and flying around the world. I yeah, um, so I didn't have a lot of creative freedom there because our food was cooked in the catering unit in Abu Dhabi on ground. So um, I had the food delivered to the plane. Everything was ready to go. I just had to finish it, warm it up, and put it on the plate. The only thing we offered to our guests uh, was um, a special dish every day. Every every flight, we we were doing like a special special dish that we were just making up with the ingredients we had there. But there is a bit of a limit on what you can do. Uh, on board but from that job I guess what I took were all the travels that I did around the world and that I had always uh, 24 or 48 hours in each location and I could go to markets or go to restaurants or buy some books or tools or you know like that's and going to I don't know countries like Brazil like South Korea like uh, Switzerland Australia I was coming to Australia um, you know like you can you can see and learn a lot why did you come back to Australia and, and what did you do when you came back I came back to Australia because that, I mean, this break in Abu Dhabi and Europe, it was just a break. Like the idea was to stay in Australia. Um, Yeah. Uh, When I left to Abu Dhabi, it was after Hamilton Island. So I was there for a couple of years running the Yacht Club. Uh, We had the Yacht Club, Bomi Restaurant. So I was there for a couple of years and that was after... Um, almost four years running Bohemian and then New York and Spain. It was uh, um, since I left school when I was 19, it was like, um, I don't know how many years, but almost 15 years nonstop and going from one job to another. And with also the challenges of moving to different countries and and applying for visas and as you know like all this is is quite stressful going through all these processes so i got to a point where i'm like i have to have a break otherwise i'm just gonna have a a just uh, my body my mind needs a break and is when i left hamilton island and i moved to europe first to do some research in ice cream and gelato which is one of my passions making ice cream and I spent around six months uh, in doing research. Um, I worked in an ice cream shop in Spain for the summer. And then uh, I, I moved to Italy for a couple of weeks. And then uh, New York for a couple of weeks. So it was a total of yeah, five months, I think. And um, just doing research, doing my own recipes, um, and after that is when I went to Abu Dhabi. Uh, I did seven months there, 
but it was it was a break working in different fields that uh, are not restaurant just to give my mind a break to learn new skills to see new things and then come back to australia and start something new a bit more seriously yeah how did the gig with point leo estate happen uh, well, it happened when Phil Phil Wood still was here, and he was uh, the culinary director, and he was looking for a senior sous chef uh, to run Laura at that time. And when I went to Laura to meet Phil and and Roger Lancia, who is our general manager. And they show me around, and I saw Laura. It reminded me so much of uh, the kitchen we had at La Broge in Madrid. And for me, the biggest challenge moving to Australia, moving to a new country, was to go back to do what I like doing, which is um, gastronomic restaurants or fine dining restaurants. Um, moving to a new country is, it's, I guess, at the beginning, it might be difficult finding the right opportunities. Um, so I thought that was um, the right opportunity for me to go back to what I like the most doing, which is it's, it's uh, gastronomic restaurants, it's fine dining. That's how I grew up and that's what I did. And when I saw the restaurant, saw the kitchen, and then I learned about the, the producers, the, the produce around the peninsula, um, yeah, that's, that's how I started. I moved there as a, as a senior sous for, for Phil and Laura. And then when he left, I was offered the, his position to run the three restaurants. It was something that I really had to think about because managing a, such a large team is a big responsibility and and um, and obviously uh, really big shoes to fill after he left um, but I don't know it, it's just again um, a challenge for me and and yeah uh, I took it <laughs> but <laughs> at the beginning it was like jumping jumping from a plane and you're like, okay, I don't know if the parachute is going to open or not, but I'm just, I'm going to jump. Um, but I guess the difference is like, um, I come from all these years working in different restaurants around the world. And I guess all this experience is, is, is helping me to go through it. Mm -hmm. Well, you're doing extraordinary things there in the Mornington Peninsula. What do you love about what you do? Um, what I love about what I do is the, the excitement of hospitality. It's, uh, it's a venue that it just, it, it breathes, uh, how you say, like uh, you can breathe hospitality just when you walk into it. And we have a team of, of hospitality people, like starting from uh, Roja, who's our GM, and uh, Ainsley and Madeleine, Ainsley Labak and Madeleine Morgan, who are our uh, restaurant managers, they are like hospitality legends in Victoria and working with them and then with my team, like my team, we are almost, as I said, almost 40 chefs at different levels. I walk through the kitchen, I can see myself at different stages because we have from kitchen hands to senior sous, so going through all the steps. So that's what keeps me going. 
um, welcoming the guests, cooking for them, uh, working with my team. I mean, that's what that's what excites me. The hospitality feel that we have there. Well, Joseph, it's an absolute honor to have you on uh, Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story. I know there's so much more to it. So um, please keep in touch and we'll have to catch up again soon. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for giving me the chance to, to talk about the story. Thank you so much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.